This is Undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. All right, Matthew. Yes. I am so excited today. Yes. Because we get to talk about the civil rights movement. All right. And we get to talk about and to talk to one of the unsung heroes of that movement. Here we have the civil rights movement, perhaps the largest social movement of the 20th century, a mass popular movement that really has defined some of or or shaken up some of our quintessential ideas about what America is. And it has had such broad influence on the women's rights movements, on other kinds of movements. Pride. Yeah, pride movement, you know, um, African liberation struggles, you know, and all of those different kinds of movements. And people often refer to the civil rights movement as a second reconstruction. And so we have the civil rights movement where historian Ted Tunnell, he calls it the second reconstruction because he says that the movement of the 50s and 60s is a time in which black people are finally truly emancipated. They're only half emancipated after the Civil War, right? And the final meaning of emancipation and the promise of the first reconstruction after the Civil War, it doesn't come until the 50s and the 60s. The second reconstruction. Mm -hmm. But without the first one, we can't have the second one. (laughs) Exactly. You know? Exactly. Du Bois had said the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Mm -hmm. And the the civil rights movement really magnified that. Because here we're going to have these epic battles. We had the Montgomery uh, movement, um, Little Rock right here with us here in Arkansas. Right? We had the Freedom Rides. Right. With uh, John Lewis and all of them. We had Freedom Summer. We had Selma, uh, Memphis, where MLK was shot. All of these different campaigns. It's like, you know, we remember the, the, the Civil War, the Battle of uh, Gettysburg and Tietum, yeah. <laughs> you know. And so here we have, you know, these major fighters. The NAACP is fighting, um, getting legal victories. Um, Brown 1 and Brown 2, Thurgood Marshall, um, the Emmett Till. And so we had all of these different um, groups of people, the SCLC, right, Um, MLK and the Montgomery Bus Boycott and all of these different um, groups that were active, the the Greensboro sit-in. Today I'd like to welcome Mrs. Sarah Collins-Rudolph to the Undisciplined Podcast. Now, who is Mrs. Sarah Collins Rudolph? She was, uh, she is the fifth little girl um, who was inside the lounge uh, of the 16th Street Church when a bomb detonated um, in 1963. And she valiantly tried to save her sister, Addie, um, who lost her life um, during that time. 
Decades later, for that act of bravery and, of course, courage, she received the Harmony Award from the Congress for Racial Equality. And more than a decade now, Ms. Sarah Collins Rudolph, you know, one of those victims, one of the surviving victims of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, has been telling her story, her experience of this vicious domestic terrorist violence that she experienced. And happily, her full story is now available for all of us to learn from in her book, The Fifth Little Girl, Soul Survivor of the 16th Street Baptist Church Bombing, the Sarah Collins Rudolph story. And it was written uh, with her alongside Wright State University political science professor, Dr. Stracy D. Snipe. And it's a book that really chronicles Mrs. Rudolph's life growing up in the civil rights era of Birmingham, a really untold story that we don't often hear about because there's so much attention placed on the three um you know, sorry, the four little girls who died and not this um, little girl who survived. And so today we're very excited for Mrs. Rudolph to tell her story, um, her, you know, her, how she has lived, how she experienced it, how she's lived her life in the aftermath, um, the justice that came of it or the lack of justice and how she's continuing to fight to get justice. So, I would really like to say welcome to the Undisciplined Podcast, um, Mrs. Rudolph. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So, Mrs. Rudolph, can you tell me what it was like growing up in Birmingham during that time period? What were you into as a little girl? Well, at the age of 12, I was into having fun with my sisters and playing games and uh, playing baseball and, and just playing uh, made uh, cards, uh, just different things like that that kids usually do, you know. And and uh, I was uh, also in the choir at the 16th Street Baptist Church. So we went to choir rehearsal and our church would take us to swimming, going to Leeds, Leeds Alabama to swim in the swimming pool. It was just things that young people do. We had Bible class, you know. We go to Bible school during the summertime. You had vacation Bible camp? Yes, we did that, you know. And uh, it was just, we just had a lot of fun as being kids. So your parents, looks like they were quite secure in leaving you in the hands of your church family? Yes, they they would leave us in the hand because we had some very responsible people, uh, teachers, uh, during that time. And, you know, at that church it was, but most people had jobs like doctors and lawyers and teachers, and they were, they were very trust, trusting, you know, to keep us, you know, uh, well. The, the, those uh people who went to your church, I imagine they lived in your community and you knew them. Uh, yes, some of them. Uh, but they, uh, I stayed in communities community Smithfield, but most of them stayed close to Center Street, you know, where the big homes was at, you know, up, up the hill. 
see on the street, uh, uh, that's that same street where, uh, where, uh, lawyers and, and teachers stayed on. Now, what did church mean to you? I heard you say you were in the choir, but what did church mean to you and your family? Was it just a religious place for you? I've heard you mentioned getting taken to swimming. How did the church, how did you think of church in your, you know, childhood life? I think, at least I know church was something that really brought us knowing about living holy, you know, and, and taught us about Jesus Christ, our Savior. And uh, a lot of uh, my parents, uh, uh, she would let us go all the time because uh, we were interested in, in being holy and living right uh, uh, during that time, time you know. And, uh, and, and we loved singing in the choir and taking, we took up offerings we did all things that uh, the church wanted us to do, and we had fun doing it. Mrs. Rudolph, this is Matthew here. Um, do you remember um, an early experience of racism in your life? Do you remember a specific moment that sticks out to you? Oh, yes, I remember that, too, yes. Racism was something that we grew into, you know, we knew we seen how we had to live, you know. I remember my mother, how when she went shopping, uh, they wouldn't allow us to put the shoes on. She had to put our feet on a piece of paper and mark the size of our feet because uh, we could she bought the shoes, but we couldn't try them on, you know. And 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 how it was so racist about where we would uh, sit in the movie theater. They wouldn't let blacks sit down downstairs. All blacks had to go to the up in the basement and and all uh and, and to, we had to go up in the balcony and watch the movies so uh and also we sing the sounds on the water fountain black i mean said uh white and color fountain we couldn't drink out the uh, white fountain because if we if we touched the white fountain they would arrest us yeah there was a lot of things that uh, shouldn't have been done and, and a lot of racism was, was going on, and we had to march, uh, try to get uh, our uh, civil rights, you know? Yeah, and you were experiencing this at, you know, an elementary age, right? You were, you know, <laughs> maybe not even double digits. Yeah, I seen this uh, through my mother, how she would have to go to these uh, meetings, uh, uh, how she had to go to these uh, civil rights meetings at the church on, on Wednesday night. She would always leave about seven o'clock because they was trying to uh, march for uh, for our civil rights during that time. Were you aware of um, when you were drinking, say, water from the black or white fountains, or colored in white fountains, or having to sit up in the balcony? I'm sure your understanding of what was happening then as a child probably is not as um, deep as you understand it now. Did you understand this as something that was severely uh, um, uh, handicapping of your dignity and liberty as a, as a child? Did you understand it that way? Yeah, I understand it, the fact that this wasn't right. Because I remember standing at, in, in Smithfield how the white people... The children would come behind us and call us all kind of names. I, I, I uh, 
learn about the racism at a very early age. Because when we were when white people come throughout through our community, going to Kroger's store, it was a Kroger's grocery store, and if they'd be behind us, they would call us names. Yeah, I, I knew it all because they didn't try to have they didn't try to hide it, you know, during that time. It was all out in the open. Were you aware of the Ku Klux Klan? Did you hear children's story? Were they like the boogeyman, or did you know that these were real people who meant you harm if they ever encountered you? I didn't just really uh, uh, know about the Ku Klux Klan, but I knew it was a lot of uh, hate coming from the white people. But I, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know about it until uh, our church was bombed. They kept saying the Ku Klux Klan, and I, I found out then there was a, there was a, a, a racist organization that bombed our uh, church because they were, they was uh, uh, they bombed it because that's where uh, uh, Martin Luther King would come and, and bring his uh, workers, uh, workers, work his civil rights workers to come have meetings there at the church. So you think that because of uh, MLK's celebrity and fame that the church was particularly targeted for that? Yeah, it was it was it was targeted too for for uh, for the fact that uh, when the uh, children start going to white school, they didn't like that. They 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 hated us because we was they had start uh, uh, letting letting white I mean blacks into the white school, and that was where Martin Luther King was trying to uh, have peaceful margins so that we can do these things because we stayed in in in. Uh, in an area where there was a school two blocks from us, but we had to go five to seven blocks and walk this uh, school. When we can just practically walk out our door and, and go to the white school, he was trying to march against all this uh, 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 racism. I've seen um, quotes from Angela Davis. Did you know her growing up, uh, Mr. Busby, who gave me your book, and told me that I guess you guys were all from that same area. Oh, I didn't know Andrew Day, but I know Billy Bussey. I know him as he was in my classroom. He stayed not too, too far from us. He's uh, close to the school. That's where we, I knew him from, Hill School. Angela Davis, um, one of my experiences of thinking about you know, what happened uh, to you was uh, thinking about what she described as the omnipresence of violence in the community in Birmingham, because she's from Birmingham. And so when people started talking about, you know, asking her what her thoughts on violence um, was, she talked about how her dad and other dads in her community down there in Birmingham had to patrol her neighborhood at night because there had been other bombings in the area. And um, the dads had to take turns to guard the homes, you know, that you could hear buildings shake from you know, the ricocheting of bombs going off. And so it seemed to me, and maybe I have this wrong, that that the, when the church was bombed, it was not new or it was not the first time that the Ku Klux Klan had planted bombs in those black neighborhoods down there in Birmingham. No, it wasn't new. Bombs were going off all, kind, all the time. 
we uh Angela Davis stayed right up down the hill with Center Street where uh like I was telling you about Center Street here where uh uh they bombed Lawyer Show's house. They bombed his house twice. Yeah, it was a regular th- thing bomb going off. Cause they hated us black folks just that much. Uh 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 they didn't want us you know, they didn't want us around. Yeah, I remember because she stayed right up the hill from where where the bombs were going off, and they had to watch because you know you, they were doing stuff at night. Oh, all up there in that neighborhood, in different neighborhoods, uh, planting bombs, and and uh, they had to have somebody watch and see who who, who was coming around and and placing those bombs. Wow. Yeah, she. T- I, I remember her, that interview very well. The interviewer asked her about whether she approved of violence, and she said, you know, that just doesn't make any sense at all, whether I approve of guns. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. I remember from the time I was very small, the sound of bombs exploding across the street and the house shaking. That's why when someone asked me about violence, I find it incredible because it means the person asking that question have absolutely no idea what black people have gone through and experienced in this country from the first time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. And so um, I want to ask you, you know, to think about... um, since your parents and others were involved in the civil rights movement, do you know, did your mom, did you ever discuss with your mom about um, any particular, uh, what her aim was in being a part of the movement, what she hoped to achieve uh, of her involvement with the movement? Yes, they they wanted to try to get jobs for black, you know, black person couldn't even be a cat cashier, get a cashier job. They didn't want black people in these stores. They they only they only they really didn't want blacks to even go in, into certain places to eat. Yeah, they were trying to stop all this. That's why she marched. That's why the the uh, people marched so we can have rights just like the white man had white people had. You know, because uh 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 you go into a store and then they tell you you can't come in and eat, you know, because this is just for white folk. These are the kind of things that they was marching for. And then if you, if you get served, you got to go outside to a certain wonder to get your food. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing that they were marching for. We wanted jobs. We wanted to be treated equal. Do you remember the first time you heard about the civil rights movement or encountered it or came to learn that there was a movement that would be fighting for the rights of black people? Well, I, I, I knew that uh, 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 Martin Luther King had the Christian, uh, uh, Christian community of people mo- uh, coming here. And uh, like I said, I know he, w- he was fighting for it because he wasn't satisfied really for what he's seen going on. How the police, they was putting police dogs on on. on on the people that was marching, Bull Connor had, had his his police dog, and he would drive around in in, in a, a, a army tanks and things, and, and, and tell the people to uh, the side side truck people to, to put the pressure water holes on young people on the people that was marching. Yeah, uh, it was just it was just doing a terrible thing during that time. You you uh, 
you just had to be really be careful because there was a lot of haters back there. And they didn't want us here. They wanted us to go back. But they the one bought us here on our ancestors here. But after the ancestors did all this work and building everything, they didn't want us around no more. And so that was wrong. So I I know that TV was coming into uh, being during that time. So you mentioned all the police dog that the racist Bull Connor would set on the protesters, the fire hoses, the dogs. And Martin Luther King was keen in his strategy for the civil rights movement to use children right? Um, the ways to get to the heartstrings of people. One of his strategies was to use children. Did you ever go with your mom to any of the meetings or take a, you know, listen at what these adults were talking about in this civil rights movement? No, I didn't go, but I, but I know what they were going to, uh, for because they had to keep things quiet because uh, uh, they had signals, uh, some kind of signals that they usually use to uh, let folks know where they was going to meet because uh, the white folks wanted to try to find out all this so they can try to start, you know, trouble and whatever. But they would uh, always pray and, and, and be guided by God for whatever they decided to do in those meetings because uh, uh, they they treated uh, blacks, they didn't treat blacks around during that time. So it was some kind of secret code they had, especially when it came down to the uh, uh, disc jockeys and things on the radio. They had codes because they didn't want the white men to know what they were doing. Obviously, faith is a major element of, of your story. How do you reckon with the idea that, you know, in name, the Ku Klux Klan is supposedly a Christian organization? How do you reconcile that, and how do you think about, um, you know, the folks who did this incredible damage to your community were doing it in the name of Jesus? Well, you know, that that was just a name they gave it because they weren't Christians. You know, Christians wouldn't bomb up to God's house and try to kill people, you know. So uh, I think they was led by the devil. That's what it was, but they were just... They was uh they didn't have the they were they, they err because of lack of knowledge, you know, they didn't have the knowledge to know that they weren't Christian. You know, Satan can would really fool you if you had that kind of uh man, you know, you know, you're not really thinking Christian Christians are about love and kindness and and help people but not to bomb God's house. Mrs. Rudolph Let's go to the very beginning of that day. You know, I'm sure it's a day that, you know, has changed your life forever. Do you remember that day? Oh, I, I never will forget that day. It's always, it's always in, my, in my spirit of how we had walked to church that Sunday morning. It was three of us walking to church. It was my sister Jane and Ed and I. And we walked to church. We were so happy because that day was going to be a youth day program, and we was going to be in it. I can imagine you probably got your hair pressed, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we was ready because we were going to sing in the choir. We had choir roles. And uh, we were going to sing and, and participate in the youth day program. And when we when we got to church that 
that uh, morning. That's when we went into the latest lounge and we freshened up. Jane left us and went on upstairs to her class, and and we we were still in the latest lounge, stayed in the latest lounge, and uh, when we when I looked out the door, that's when I seen Denise Magnell sent to with the Carol Robson. They came in in the lounge and spoke to us, and they went on to the other side to use stall. And when they came out of the stall, Denise walked over to walked over to Ed and asked Ed to tie the sash on her dress and. We were all looking to see her tie, but when she reached her hand out the tie, that's when the bomb went off. And I heard that noise. Boom! It shook the flo- It shook the church. It, it shook all over Alabama because everybody said they, they felt the, the shaking of that bomb. And uh, all I can do when I, when I, I when she reached over I, and I, and the bomb went off, I, I called, I said, Jesus! And I called, started calling Eddie, and I had it, Eddie, Eddie, but she didn't answer. So I thought that the girls had ran back into the uh, lady uh, in the Sunday school area because I was blind. I was blind about a degree, you know. It went in my eyes. And all of a sudden, I heard someone holler, I'm at a bomb at 16th Street Church. And I didn't know who that was, but that's I found out that's what had happened. So. This person came in, and I found out who he was. I found him out who, out who he was later on that year. He was one of the deacons. He told me that when he heard the noise, he decided to come downstairs to see what it was. But when he began to take the step, step was blown away. So he came on in and picked me up, and the ambulance was already out waiting. And he put me in the ambulance and rushed me to the hospital. So that was that morning, you know. Oh my goodness! So you didn't know that your sister was not there or had gone to the hospital. I didn't know my sister was killed. They thought me. They just bought me out, and they were still. They had went under the under the uh, debris, and I was just standing because they were. They see, they was cross from me, and I was at the sink, and uh, I was instantly blinded. From that debris, and I couldn't see which way they went. I couldn't even feel what had happened. But I know when I called the lady now, she didn't know. So. Oh my goodness! So I know there was, you know, a, a picture that became very uh, significant to the civil rights movement of you in the hospital bed that was taken. Do you remember that photograph? Yeah, yeah, I had that photograph on my book. Uh-huh. Well, uh, they put that photograph on my book and I got it here. That's when uh that's when uh some uh, one man, I don't know his name, he was from Life like it was in Life magazine saying that they took that picture. I didn't even I didn't know about that picture until I got older. Somebody seen it on the computer and gave it to me. And uh ever since then it's been shown all around the world, you know, that you were a field girl in that in the basement too. So you were short, you know. I imagine reunited with your parents, and they told you what had happened. Yeah, that's when I when I went to the hospital. I didn't know what had happened, but then with Jana, she came and I asked her uh, where was Addie, and she said that Addie had hurt her back and she was gonna come to visit me until tomorrow. And so I I said okay. But I guess she was trying not to upset me because when I went upstairs to my uh, uh, 
after they got through operating on my ass, that's when my mother had told me that uh, that all the girls that were in the lounge with me, they were all key. I was the only survivor. How did you feel in that moment? I know psychologists often, you know, encounter people who have survived such tragedies and violence as, you know, having survivor's guilt. Did you get the conviction that... No, I didn't get that. I, 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 I was still nervous. I was still shaking up. I was angry because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, uh, as a young child, I didn't understand why they would bomb to kill innocent people. I was angry for a long time in life. And plus, when I, when I lost my eyes, uh, uh, I had to go back to school that practically almost that next week because I, I was in the hospital until no, two months, so, uh, November. So when they, when I got out the hospital, I had to go right back to work. I, they didn't counsel me. They didn't do nothing for me. And they had uh, told me that I, the doctor told me to come back in February. So he had to remove my right eye because it was damaged too bad to be saved. So I, I went blind and it, and I'm still angry because the city of Birmingham didn't do, didn't do anything when Will Connor was the cause of that church being bombed and all the hate that was going around in the city of Alabama, the city of Birmingham, and yet they don't want to give me they don't want to give me reparation or, or, or anything for what they did back then. Governor Ivey, he don't want to uh, give me reparation simply because of the fact. Well. It didn't happen when we was up there. Yeah, it happened in Alabama when they had a, a governor promoting hatred. It happened then. And now I hadn't received nothing yet, and I'm and I'm still uh, uh, shaken up, and I can't I can't see my other eye going bad. But we can't give reparation because it didn't happen during our time, but it happened in Alabama. Didn't it happen in Alabama? Yes. And I, and and I and I, they owe it to me. Because if they didn't promote all that hatred, I could be, my sister would be here today and them four girls would have been living, but they did it. Like one of, the, one of them said that all they need was a few uh, first-class films. They'll beg us to keep things segregated. So then it happened. It happened that way. But yet, they don't owe me nothing. And I got to live like this. And it's still coming back now. Racism is back again. When we got people, when we got people in government like like they had Donald Trump, and they got people like that promoting racism, it's back, it's back again. And then people in in in, in the uh, yeah. re- uh, Republican, they fuck uh, racism. They racist. I'm not saying to tell it. Yeah, they racist, and they want to bring all that stuff right back again when they owe black people money for what the black people went through during that time. I imagine, given the trauma, the extreme trauma that you went through um, with that bombing, I look at people now experiencing war and violence in Ukraine, and I'm thinking about you surviving the shrapnel or whatnot that you have lodged in you. And I can imagine when you heard about Dylan Roof shooting up those black people in that church, 
it may have triggered you in some extreme degree, did it? Yes, it did. And still, like I say, Ray Field is alive and well. And he know he didn't have to come in there and kill those people. And they treated him as nice and everything. And when they we went to that church, they said that when they were saying, uh, finna turn out, that's when he started shooting and killing them. And those people treated that that white guy with love and kindness. And that's what they got for treating him with love. They all was killed because of hatred. And it's still around the world today. But I know one thing, this world better get right and, and put away racism because if they don't, in hell, they're going to open up their eyes. So the perpetrators of this injustice to you and your sister and your friends and members of your community, what happened to them? Did you ever get justice? Were they put in jail? Oh, yeah, they went They went to court. They, they, they uh, now, uh, Robert Chamberlain, he went to court in, in yeah. Yeah, nineteen seventy seven. And but they but these other two they waited thirty nine years so they went to court. So that was the case in which um Senator uh was able to prosecute that case, right? Doug Jones prosecuted that. Yeah. Robert Chambliss was arrested in the seventies and then Thomas Blanton and Bobby Cherry was um brought to justice by Doug Jones decades later. And you played you played a big role in that in terms of giving testimony, right? Yeah, I had to go and testify for what happened that morning. Yeah, all of them. I testified in all three of them. You know, the nothing Herman Casper, he died before he went to court. What do you think about when the latter two, why did it take so long from your perspective? What did it take so long to bring those perpetrators to justice? Well, it took a long time because when no white man wanted to take that case, Doug Young had to go through college and everywhere and learn everything, and then he took the case because I I really believe if if a uh, if somebody if, if if a racist person had took that case, they would they wouldn't uh, they would have got all free because uh you know how, how racist people stick together so. He, it was it was it was uh good that Doug Jones took the case because all of them went to jail, but, uh, and and all of them are, you know, they dead now. So wow. So how do you think about the legacy of the civil rights movement today and your experiences? What do you think that young people and people in our society can learn from your story? What lessons do you think you're leaving behind that your story is trying to tell us? Well, it's still, my story is trying to let them know it's time for people to start getting out and vote and, and get some of these you know, races, you know, out of office, you know, to choose somebody that kill about about. Everybody, you know, all colors of race and not just white only, you know. So they need to uh, really get out and, and vote and vote because that's what we need now that we can get somebody in office that would care about the poor and the needy and, and, and everybody, all, all races, you know. Wow. I mean, this is such a powerful story, Mrs. Rudolph. And, you know, 
I have you filed formal uh, charges to the state for reparations? And when are you are you hoping to have audience with Governor Ivy? Uh, are you having any prospects of that? Oh no, no ma'am. I had I, I I got lawyers. That's all. So it's it's up to her to make a move because it's time for her to uh to look and and to know what went on then was wrong because the government was involved, Governor Wallace was involved, and just because she wasn't in office then, that don't mean she can't correct what was done back then. Can I say one thing? Yes. Thank you, Mr. Rudolph. My wife is very restitution for what all she had for what all she had to endure in her young life. And it shouldn't be no question asked about why should she number one, she lost her sister. She lost her right eye. She suffered with PTSD. So it shouldn't be hard to determine that she deserved it. I mean, what happened in nine eleven? Boston Marathon, Mother Emanuel with nine people were killed. Those cases, they have they have settled with those people. You know, they get they got restitution, but for some reason, the state of Alabama <clears throat> would not uh, do that for my wife. And I think that is so wrong. It is so wrong that they overlook sales. You know, it's just wrong. Do you think it's something specific and particular to the state of Alabama that prevents uh, that kind of a restitution from coming, whereas other states, whether it's Boston or, you know, South Carolina with the mother? It don't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. She deserved it. She deserved it. And she deserved with interest because when... When that happened to my wife, the guys got away with it for a long time. So they were convicted. They got away a long time, enjoyed their life. They they held jobs, uh, enjoyed their families, got a paycheck. Because it happened September the 15th, 1963. So from that time to Robert Chambers, them guys got away with that. And while still my wife had to suffer. She really had to suffer. And no one came to her rescue. No one came to her rescue and asked her. Her mother and father died waiting on something, but they never did receive anything. Her mom and daddy died waiting. And I'm 71 and I'm still waiting. And my wife is 71. She's still waiting. Got a birthday next month. She'd be 72 years old and still waiting. I have not received anything. Have you at least received a formal apology from the state? The apology came through the media. So if if, 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 it, if it had been a real apology, she should have invited my wife down to the capital, which is Montgomery, Alabama. That is the capital. That would have been, that would have been, uh, I could have, received a little more better than through the media. What I'm saying, she could invite Sarah 
and the other family members down to the captain and, 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 and let each family member know that she is sorry that they had to endure this. But how she did, she got on the TV in front of the camera and, and said she apologized. No, uh-uh. I, I don't really accept that. Do you think that um, the the thought is maybe they're just running out the clock, waiting for... Uh, Sarah uh, to die, Sarah to die. That's it. Man, hmm. I'm so glad you said They've been waiting on Sarah to die. Hmm. That's well, all it is. Well... And that's how I, that's how I look at it. Hmm. Because why, why, I mean, what all she had, my wife, what all she had to go through, and not receive anything because everybody in their right mind knows she deserves it. I wish only good things for you. And I will, um, if a petition ever come this way, I will send it to as many people I can uh, so that we can, you know, get you what you rightfully deserve. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Undisciplined is hosted by me, Karee Banton. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undisciplined for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening.